Here with me on the clinical consult is Dr. John Goodwin, clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine for a discussion on psychological assessment and families. Dr. Goodwin's a licensed psychologist in Iowa, certified health service psychologist by the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, and trained as a school psychologist with a special focus in psychological assessment and gifted education. Dr. Goodwin, welcome and thanks for joining. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Daniel. I'm looking forward to our conversation. At the outset here, I want to acknowledge, as, as you know, John, psychological assessment is, is not synonymous with, with a test or testing, it's more of a comprehensive process of looking at some aspect of a person's functioning and frequently requires advanced training, which we'll talk a little bit more about here in a second. And th this is something that can take many forms and occur in different settings, like in healthcare, educational environments, or, or legal settings, and it can happen for various different reasons. So our episode today assumes our, our listeners have some experience with psychological assessment and background in this area, like with assent and consent, intaking, administering an assessment, scoring, report writing, you name it, the whole bit. So we'll revisit near the end of this episode some of what these qualifications look like and some relevant resources. But I, I want to transition at the outset here, John, into a scenario that we'll go ahead and focus on throughout our discussion which is, imagine for me a, that a child presents to your office and they're accompanied by, by their parent or legal guardian. And they've got with them a letter from a physician and they're requesting psychological assessment services. And, and soon thereafter, you learn that the child has been struggling in school with uncharacteristically poor academic performance and some behavior problems, which I know you've seen this presentation before. And this scenario is, is really, I think, common for a lot of psychologists practicing in, in many of the settings I mentioned earlier. In hearing this, could you break down just a few essential clinical considerations? I really like how you preface your question earlier with the knowledge that psychological assessment is not synonymous with a test, right? I think of assessment as gathering information, and that certainly involves uh, testing but it's getting a better understanding of the context within which the child or the patient, the family in which they exist. And often when you, when you try to address that question, then you can think more about, okay, what is the purpose of the assessment? So if a child is presenting with learning concerns, struggling with behavior or any kind of challenge that's just undermining their academic functioning, data gathered from an assessment will likely be consumed not only by parents or treatment providers, but also school personnel. And uh, sometimes that assessment data can be used to develop formal accommodations or formal interventions, such as uh, individualized education program so we're talking about special education services. It can be to develop formal accommodations through a 504 accommodation plan. But another important consideration is, what is the purpose of assessment? Who will be the consumers of the assessment data? And how will that be used to serve or benefit the child? Um, the other important consideration is 
for an evaluator to think about is uh, how competent or how capable am I to address this referral concern? An example for me is right now, a lot of my assessment practice is to address the concern about whether a child has autism spectrum disorder. And a comprehensive assessment of autism symptomology requires special training, right? Some psychologists may not feel comfortable doing that type of evaluation or may believe that they're competent to conduct that type of assessment and they're really not. Um, And I think it's really the responsibility of that clinician to assess his or her or their training and their competence to determine whether they can adequately address the concerns that brought the child into the clinic or the assessment setting. And I think that really underscores that relationship between the clinical considerations and the ethical ones. I really think that those go hand in hand. To your point there, that boundaries of competence consideration, that's pulled straight from the ethics code. That's, that's under standard two, I believe, 2.01. And yes. I like your other questions about, you know, who's the client? What's the purpose of the assessment? Do I have, do I have training? These are really fundamental considerations for psychologists to be processing, you know, during this assessment process that you described. I want to shift, I want to shift here to con- thinking about the, the parent and the, and the child mm-hmm. or the, the child and their guardian. Mm-hmm. Let's say they're not familiar with the kind of psychological assessment that they're being referred to. You know, this is a new situation. Psychological assessment is a fairly loaded phrase yes. that we're throwing around here. What specific language can be used to help guardians and families and children understand what to expect, what that means? Well, I always tell parents and guardians that the purpose of the assessment Uh, aside from whatever the specific referral concern is, is to gain more knowledge about your child, right? So assessment, as I said before, is gathering information. And I like to explain the distinction between assessment and evaluation. Assessment is gathering information, whereas evaluation is making a judgment based on those data that are gathered through the assessment process. So what I try to do is to explain, especially when a a child is referred for a comprehensive assessment, is uh, I'm trying to gather information about how a child thinks, uh, their psychosocial adjustment, uh, their self-concept, social emotional functioning, really to get a better understanding of what are areas of strength but also where are some areas of challenge or need? Because hopefully if we can be thorough and comprehensive in our assessment um, and identify those areas of challenge, then we can intervene. Uh, And I think that that really uh, make parents have a better understanding or even be more optimistic about the value of an assessment. We don't gather all this information, typically, we don't gather all this information just to have information, uh, typically we assess to intervene. Uh, And I try to make it clear to parents that in many ways an assessment is an intervention and that we're gonna do something, we're gonna make a a 
make decisions on how information gleaned from an assessment can benefit a child. And that's really where I start off. Now, I think it's also very helpful to explain to the, the actual client, the child, what the assessment will be like. It depends on the developmental level of, of the client and the age. I really try to describe in some sort of concrete language what they'll be doing. One thing I always avoid is I don't tell them, we're going to do tests, right? And sometimes parents who may have a, an initial understanding of assessment and that it involves some tests, uh, sometimes they'll explain that to the kid before I even get to see them. And, and that's fine. But when that happens, I kind of have to kind of work through some anxiety because testing is very loaded, much more loaded than saying psychological assessment. So typically I say, we're going to uh, do some brain teasers, especially if I'm doing intelligence testing, some sort of cognitive assessment. Or I try to describe the activities as games. And I explain to kids how important it is that they do their very, very best. And that's really how I, I start off. I try to answer as many questions as the kids may have, and parents for that matter. One that a lot of kids may ask is, are you gonna, are you gonna share this with my teacher or am I being graded or something like that? And once I can explain that, no, you're not being graded, I can make some progress in kind of reducing anxiety. Such an essential step there. I'll just intervene for a moment that one part about this discussing psychological assessments that many of our listeners are aware of is, is that assent consent process. So I don't, mm -hmm. don't want to delve into that too deeply here because I know that's a, a, pro, a topic in and of itself. We do have a, a number of other episodes and materials on that in our clinical consult series that I would encourage interested listeners to, to pursue those materials. But I want to shift from that example language that you've provided mm -hmm. to, to engaging with cultural differences that a psychologist may have with, with their patient and or their, their patient's guardian and how to, how to navigate that. So it's a, big, it's a big question. I almost feel bad even asking you to engage it because there's so much rich potential, potential content here. Where, where are some good places to start when it comes to navigating those cultural differences? Well, you know what? It's a very important question. It really is one that doesn't have a neat um, or immediate answer. It, it really depends on the, the circumstances, um, the, the situation of the family and of the, the client. When I think about cultural considerations, first of all, that should be of paramount importance at the intake process, right? And just to go back to when we talked about clinical considerations and how they're entwined with those ethical ones, part of what you want to determine is if I have a patient or a client who has um, some sort of difference that I may not be the best person that would make me not an optimal person to serve them, if there is someone else who's better qualified or more familiar with the circumstances of a client who comes in, at that point, maybe you have to think, well, is there someone else who can better serve this client? Now, I live in Iowa, and Iowa, um, especially in the area that I, I reside in, um, is surprisingly more diverse what I thought Iowa was when I first came here. 
One of the challenges though, is that we don't necessarily have um, uh, psychologists who are bilingual or um, multilingual, right? So sometimes it's appropriate to uh, bring in a translator to assist with the uh, assessment. Um, that has its own um, ethical and really clinical Im implications. And I think that it's of paramount importance that there be proper consent, proper understanding of the limitations of joining the assessment um, with a translator. But sometimes that's an important component that needs to be brought into uh, uh, an assessment. Test selection is also very important. Um, ensuring that test norms and procedures are appropriate. And that's where the psychologist has the responsibility to re really scrutinize to what extent are the norms reflective of the background and experiences of the client or patient, right? A big one, especially with the younger kids, especially those, so I'm talking about maybe kids who are four and younger, right? Whether a parent or a guardian should be in the room during an assessment. For some types of evaluations, that's totally expected and even encouraged. Um, but for other types of assessment, uh, that can really uh, skew your data and how a child responds. So those are some important um, considerations. One thing about psychological assessment that, especially when we're talking about high stakes, intellectual, cognitive, neuropsychological assessment, an important consideration that should always be at the forefront is what are the, the input and output demands for the client, right? You administer some tests in a different manner for someone who's left-handed than you would for someone who's right-handed, for example right, or for someone who may have a language disorder or difficulties with oral language. It's the psychologist's responsibility to find instruments, tools that can assess that client properly. Lastly, I'll say cultural competence is also the responsibility of psychologists. Typically, I don't use the term cultural competence, though. I think more cultural responsiveness is a better way to approach issues of diversity and multiculturalism when it comes to assessment. Uh, so, for example, part of the assessment process is the interview. And sometimes I think we all have our standard interview that we kind of use as a framework for delving into the needs of the patient. And you may ask one question one way and have to rephrase it in another way. And I really do think that it's the evaluator, the psychologist's responsibility to ensure that they're asking the questions and they're getting the, the information in a responsible way and they're doing so in a way that's culturally responsive. So finding language that gets to the question that you, you're trying to ask, for example, just, just meeting folks where they're at. I think that most psychologists, ethical psychologists, strive to do this, but it involves that constant process of self-reflection and thinking critically about the things that we're doing.
if that makes sense. It certainly does. It reminds me of that really common acronym ASK, Awareness, Skills, and Knowledge, that Absolutely. I attribute to Daryl Wing Sue and the really important work. And I think all of, all of those three components are really intertwining with the ethical commitments. We see this in, in the standard nine assessment standard within the ethics code that you're really talking about here. And it's a complicated and very important area. And I, I like in particular your notion that this cultural responsiveness is that responsibility of, of the psychologist to do in a really ongoing way. Yes. And, and, and Dan, one more thing that I would like to add is that at the outset of the assessment, you, you obviously want to explain the purpose of the assessment. Part of that process is clarifying what questions need to be answered. But I think it's also important for psychologists who do assessment to explain the limitations of the assessment too. I, I've had some experiences where uh, clients have expectations regarding what an assessment can do and what information will be gleaned from an assessment. And sometimes they're disappointed in the outcome, right? And, and once again, I, I reiterate the importance of how the clinical considerations and the ethical considerations go hand in hand. So for example, sometimes I have parents who just know that their child is on the autism spectrum and they are expecting a diagnosis and then I do the evaluation and then the data don't really support that diagnosis, right? And that can be really challenging when you're giving feedback to a parent who anticipates one outcome and they don't get that, right? Sure. I think that it, that just kind of underscores the, the weight and, and value of an assessment because a, a, a practical reality is that uh, an assessment can provide access to services, not just school-based, but those within the community, services and accommodations by other providers too. So ethically, I think it's important that uh, parents and the client have some sort of understanding of the limitations of an, ex an, an assessment and probably some, some moderation of expectations. Really vital to have that discussion at the outset and to your point earlier, you know, in, in kind of an ongoing way as the mm -hmm. theme of our conversation here today. John, I know your time is at a, a real premium, but before, uh, before we wrap up, I know you, you need to go shortly. Could you break down a, f a few resources or, or considerations with respect to information that psychologists can access who might want to think more or read more about some parts of our conversation today? Yeah, well, First, I, I certainly encourage psychologists to seek the resources from some of the professional organizations. So the National Academy of Neuropsychology, especially for those psychologists and neuropsychologists who practice within that realm. The National Association for School Psychologists has some really good information on assessment, especially for psychologists who may be doing a lot of assessment to support educational planning. Um, that is, uh, you could probably do a, an entire podcast on some of the challenges and nuances and uh, differences with doing that type of an assessment because the client 
varies. It's a little different. For some uh, referrals for uh, um, something called an independent educational evaluation, really the request for the evaluation isn't really the parent, it's the school or the school district. Or there are some psychologists who do assessment within a school setting and the client is indeed the school district. They're providing the assessment service as an agent of the school district. So I would encourage any psychologist who is interested in doing assessment for educational purposes to familiarize themselves with some of the resources on the National Association for School Psychologists website. There's also a Facebook group and a online community called the Testing Psychologists. And it's a community of psychologists who primarily focus on assessment. Uh, That's kind of the bread and butter of their practice. And there are a lot of wonderful resources and information sharing about some of the ethical or clinical considerations that can come up. So those would be some pretty helpful resources that I would encourage folks to look at. Fantastic, John. Let me just thank you for a really productive discussion here today as we conclude this episode of the Clinical Consult which has been brought to you by the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. I'm Daniel Elkert reminding listeners that this and all episodes of the Clinical Consult are intended for general information and discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education.